Well, it is great to have you on Inside the War Room. Clemente, how are you doing? Good. Thanks for having me. Okay, so I'm holding in my hand, they can't see on this, but a big, heavy book. This is a, it's a heavy book for this size because it's, it's thick, it's full of stuff. Uh, the World Cup, though, that is a very, 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 very large topic to, to tackle. What made you decide to go after such a, such a broad, encompassing thing? Yeah, no, my publisher came to me. I've written other books in the past, uh, other soccer books. My publisher came to me a little over two years ago and said, you know, the World Cup's coming. It's in Qatar. It's going to be a particular type of World Cup, a special kind of World Cup. Do you want to tackle this topic? And I said, sure. And it became a big pandemic project for me. And uh, I joke around, you know, a lot of people got dogs during the pandemic. I ended up writing this book that's over 300 pages. Actually, I had to cut out about 100 pages from this book after I was done. So, Oh, wow. It's funny, we've interviewed numerous guests who have, I mean, I had on Kyle Petty the other day, race car driver, and he was talking about how his book was a pandemic book. And so I'm curious how many books today are just like pandemic books that we're getting to getting to read now. And so I guess that would be the, maybe the one, one shining spot from that time is we got a lot, a lot of, a lot of good books. Okay. So the World Cup, um, obviously I'm down here in Texas. Um, I enjoy soccer or football as we'd call it internationally. But, you know, in U.S., it's not a huge sport like it is across the world. So let's unpack what is the origins of the World Cup? Why is it so important? Um, and, you know, how do we go about determining who participates in this, this event? Yeah, no, that's a lot there, of course. So, yeah, I think a lot of American fans got into the World Cup, obviously, in 94 when the U.S. hosted it. Um, I think after that, for American fans, it's one of those things where most people don't pay attention to the World Cup until or to soccer in general. And then the World Cup rolls around every four years. And think, I think to a lot of American audiences, it's a, it's a little bit like ice skating or gymnastics or curling. They get to it when it's on the on their TVs. And the World Cup is a little bit like that. That's why I wanted to tackle the history. I think I, I know a lot of people who started getting, getting into the World Cup, a lot of younger people in the last two or three editions. And I want to show people, look, the World Cup is a broad history. It's almost 100 years old. Um, it is the biggest sporting event on the planet. It's bigger than the Olympics. It's bigger than the Super Bowl. Um, the France-Croatia final four years ago garnered one billion people watched it on television. That's B with a you know, billion with a B, and so it's it's this gigantic cultural, religious type of event in addition to a sporting event. Um, and anybody's ever been to a foreign country during the World Cup knows that nothing gets done, no one's working, everything is at a standstill. You know, uh, I've had friends tell me they were in Germany during the World Cup or Brazil or Italy and. They couldn't get anything, any services or even the even the hotels. Nobody was at manning their stations because it's a little bit like March Madness where everyone is stuck on the TV for those few weeks. Um, it's very captivating. Um, how countries get there, well, it takes four years for them to qualify. So FIFA has about 205 members, only 32 qualify for the World Cup. So it's a very long three and a half year process. So just getting to the World Cup is a big deal, let alone winning it. Um, and so for the United States, you know, the United States missed out of uh, the World Cup four years ago, which was a big blow to soccer's growth in this country. But also sort of, you know, for most Americans, it's the World Cup that they're focused on. It's not the week to week Major League Soccer game or the Premier League. That's mm-hmm. a more of a niche thing, I think. So being at the World Cup is important for the United States and for U.S. soccer because it puts the sport front of mind every four years. And so. United States has done fairly well over the last few decades. Uh, after 94, you know, the United States was in every edition but 2018. Um, and they're back in Qatar in 2022. And uh, we'll see how they do. I've equated soccer to college football um, in the U.S., which is it's a little bit more passion. It's a little, little bit more localized. And I'm talking about like the Premier League and stuff like that. The, the teams over there, are, you know, the teams of the city. And so you kind of have that feel with college football in the U.S., the World Cup transcends that and kind of gets the the whole country feel, but the same the same ethos. I don't know what the word is also goes with it. Whereas when you go from college to pro sports, it doesn't really transcend the same way. Why is soccer or football? Whatever you call it, why is it able to kind of keep that same passion? The fans singing, the chanting. Like, how does it do that? Yeah, so the college football analogy is great. I've, I've used the same analogy, you know, with the face paint and, the, you know, just the whole culture around it. If you go down south, you know that, right, from college football. And same thing happens if you go to Europe or South America and even expand it out to Africa and Asia and other parts of the world. Um, you know, it's one of these things where I think for a very long time, um, if you look at my book, for many, many decades, the only way for countries to really express their nationalism was through soccer. 
So, you know, in post-World War II Europe, you know, being nationalistic was equated with fascism or something bad. So the only way around that was to say, well, I root for Italy. I root for my country, Germany. And people were allowed to be passionate about the soccer team because in the end of the day, the soccer team brought people together. And it wasn't seen as a, as a negative thing as opposed to um, what we saw during Nazi Germany or, or, or what have you. Um, having said that, though, a lot of dictatorships and a lot of uh, unsavory types have sort of taken the World Cup and made it sort of their own, a little bit like China did with the Olympics. Um, if you look at Vladimir Putin, he did the same thing with Russia four years ago. It becomes a big propaganda machine for them. Uh, in 1978, a military uh, junta was in charge of Argentina, and they ended up using the World Cup to their advantage in that, you know, um, to bring law and order to a country, but at the same time, kind of like the Romans and the gladiators, give the people what they want and, 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 build around uh, uh, the sport that people love so much that that can be used for good and for bad. And, and my book has that. My book has all the positives of soccer and all the history and all the stuff that happened on the field, but also some of the boardroom stuff that I'm sure we'll get to, which was not so good. Yeah. It is soccer uh, as far as all, not all sports, but most sports we think of, is it the great equalizer on a nationalistic level? Yeah, absolutely. Um, the United States is a superpower in, in a political way, in a cultural way, right? Our, our TV shows go all over the world. Um, the president of the United States is the most powerful man on the planet, right? Other countries don't have that, right? For Brazil to exert its power, its influence around the world, they have the greatest soccer team in the world. You could be anywhere in the world and run into a Brazilian. And if you just mention Pele or the Brazilian soccer team or whatever, you'll find a kinship. They know that you identify their country with this national team, with this yellow jersey, with these iconic players. And, you know, for them, it's a growth industry. Um, same thing for the Germans and the Italians and the Spanish. For a lot of countries, this is their calling card. This is their way of saying, look, we we can't be the United States, right? We can't dominate the world. But if we win the World Cup, we get bragging rights. The whole world looks up to us. The whole world will, will take notice. And I think in a lot of ways, some of that nationalistic pride transcends into into that as well the united states doesn't have that you know we we have power in other ways um i'm always reminded of you know friends of mine who are mexican or south american are always telling me you know if the united states ever got really good at soccer and won the world cup that would be so unfair they already have so much global dominance for them to win the world cup it would be like naming a a, a, an american pope be the same thing right it's like you have so much power do you really need to take over these other institutions that belong to us so in that way, you know, the United States is getting better at soccer. And I think a lot of countries are taking notice. I mean, we're already better at soccer and women's game than most of the planet. And so, um, you know, how, how far behind are the men, you know, brains to be seen. I mean, I suspect, you know, to the chagrin of our uh, Brazilian friends or German friends or whatever, that if we took our best athletes and put them on the soccer pitch, it would probably be a, a much different story. But they don't have the National Football League, the National Hockey League. They don't have the NBA. Those leagues are actually pulling from their country and bringing those people over here to the U.S. too. So we, we kind of have the the hub of sports, which um, – so um, I, I think we're the best at soccer. We, we just don't send our best. And so <laughs> although, although it would be nice to see the U.S. eventually eventually win a World, World Cup. So let's go back to the origin. You said it's about 100, 100 years old. Why do we think and what happened to where FIFA is kind of this – the World Cup is its own thing, but it's not – part of the Olympics. It's not, it's kind of its own detached thing. So what happened there? Yeah. So the, you know, the origins of the world cup are tied to the Olympics. So in the 1920s, uh, Uruguay was the best soccer team on the planet and they competed at the Olympics. Obviously the Olympics was the only game in town. Um, and Jules Rimet and some other uh, officials at FIFA at the time thought, wouldn't it be great if we had a, a world cup where we give a championship trophy to the best soccer team on the planet? The argument back then was the Olympics was reserved only for amateurs. The World Cup would be reserved for professionals. And this is where then the argument emerged. Um, so FIFA said, look, we want the best in the world to play at the World Cup. So we want you to be professional, right? Not just amateurs. Um, of course, that definition of amateur has been controversial ever since with the Soviet Union decades later. But in the early going, it was all about getting the best players on the field, and so some of the debates around that is what hampered the World Cup from even getting off the ground. Of course, in 1930, Uruguay hosted the World Cup simply because they were the best team on the planet. They won the World Cup. 1934, Italy hosted the World Cup under 
the Mussolini regime, and he, he used the World Cup for his own nationalistic purposes and propaganda purposes, and Italy won the World Cup at home then. And so, you know, in 38, Italy won the World Cup again in France. And then, of course, it was a big break for the war. World War II kind of put a halt to everything. And in 1950, the World Cup resumed. And by then, it started becoming a, a major tournament around the world. Americans didn't really look at it that way because American soccer at that time was really not not where it is today. Um, was a much more ethnic game in the United States where immigrants were really playing the sport. It wasn't really elevated to the level that, that we see it today. Um, but it really, really grew in terms of global dominance because it allowed the best players to compete while the Olympics still was reserved for amateurs. But in addition to that, the advent of television in the 1960s really grew the game globally. And then, and then that also grew FIFA's power because with television came television revenue. And you mentioned the big leagues, NBA, NHL, NFL. A lot of that engine is from television. And FIFA saw the same thing with the World Cup. And then at that point, it became a cultural phenomenon. Yeah, and you mentioned earlier that it's larger than the Super Bowl. Um, in your book, you make a reference that it's a, it's like its own religion. Christianity is like two point four billion, and soccer's got that many, or or something like that. And so, maybe put let's for the the U.S. non soccer fan, let's put economies of scale on this. When we're talking about um, just a general interest in soccer outside the U.S. for like the Premier League or La Liga or, or whatever, um, how does that rank? globally compared to something like the NFL? And then when you when you take it to like the Olympics versus FIFA or FIFA versus the Super Bowl, how do all those things stack up? Yeah, so, you know, so if the Super Bowl is watched by three 300 to 400 million people around the world, right, see, it's, it's shown globally, right? I said the World Cup is a billion people, so it's it's more than half and then some, for example. Yeah. Um, the Premier League, which is the professional um, soccer league in uh, England, is the biggest league in the world in terms of television, right? It's on everywhere. And I tell people all the time, in the United States, we're very spoiled. You can watch between 60 to 75 games, either on television or streaming, every week in the United States, which is a wealth of options. Um, I'd argue that the biggest comp- club competition in the world is the Champions League, which is the best teams in Europe playing each other. And often that's called the Super Bowl of, of club soccer. And, and that's, uh, you know... Uh, millions upon millions of people around the world will watch that because the best players from the world play in Europe, um, including South Americans and Africans and, 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 and what have you. And, and teams like Real Madrid and Arsenal and, and Liverpool and Man City, those, these are global brands uh, like the New York Yankees are. You know, they're known globally. Um, so soccer is a huge cash cow and, and, and because in terms of television uh, revenue, but also the eyeballs that are on it are, are massive. And you know, you see that American sports are trying to compete with soccer. The NBA is is basically become global. They started doing that in the 1990s with the Dream Team, and then they did so by expanding it to China, for example. Um, the NFL, right? There was a game in London a couple of weeks ago. There was a game in Munich recently. Mm-hmm. I mean, they're trying to break into the European market because they think Europeans may have an affinity for American culture, American sports, and want to watch these games up close. It's new to them. Just like soccer is new to many Americans – the NFL is new to many uh, Europeans, but it tells you how global the world has become, how much smaller it is. Mm-hmm. I mean, the internet has done that, I think. And soccer still dominates, but I will say the NBA and the NFL are, are kind of copying the, the club soccer template to, in, to a certain degree and want to see the game grow because they know that the number of eyeballs in this country is limited, obviously. And, and, and with the world getting much smaller and streaming getting much cheaper, it's a lot easier. Yeah, and... For, I'll try to link to this in the show notes, but for anyone who didn't watch the Tampa Bay Bucks game, it was late in the fourth quarter and the whole crowd starts uh, singing John Denver. And I saw people online like kind of caught off guard by this. I'm like, right, because you don't watch soccer because this is just a soccer game like for them. Like this is this how they act, the singing, the vibe, the the and it's just it's such a different field. The European um, you know, kind of experience or the soccer experience, if you will, is so kind of foreign to the American um sports feel that it is when you see people people who don't watch that they're kind of caught off guard by what's happening like wow they're all singing the song and it's late in the game and the game's kind of at hand and so and it's like yeah that's that's just kind of how the game's played right no absolutely I mean, if you watch european basketball for example there's crowds with flags and flares just like soccer i think this is the way people around the world celebrate their teams and, and and cheer on their teams americans do it very differently I, I always like to compare stadium experience in the united states to europe i've been to many soccer games in europe and there's no canned music there isn't any like 
you know, in America, the the the, the PA will announce it's time to cheer now, right? right. Or they'll they'll play charge at a at a baseball game. They'll get the crowd into it, mm-hmm. right? In soccer or in European sports, you don't need that. So, but you see a lot of that cross cultural thing now. Um, I mean, I, I saw baseball players at the World Series kissing their badge, their team badge, you know, and, mm-hmm. and they were asked, why, "Why are you doing that?" Like, why well, I, I watch European players kiss it when they score a goal. So, you know, the world's gotten so much smaller that, you know, you have American baseball players copying the celebrations of European soccer players. It's just kind of mesmerizing for someone who's been watching this game for 40 years. It it is interesting to see how, how information travels a lot faster now and customs move a lot quickly than they ever did before. So any thoughts on that? Um, Is it because maybe with football or basketball, it's it's pretty there's there's, there's um with football there's a lot of starts stops and starts um, there is a few times where it's quite clear what's going on uh, you know we go to the end zone basketball is kind of a little bit closer to soccer with a kind of a constant flow to it but soccer can be a game that I mean it, it is limited in time you know two you know two hours just but it's just kind of kind of flow to it and and there's points where there's not a lot going on so is that kind of where some of that came from people started singing to kind of past the time if you will yeah not so much past the time but i think to to encourage their team you know in soccer the, the crowd's often referred to as a 12th man because the home support can really help a team can really motivate and the jeering and the booing can really hurt the visiting team and you hear lots of there's lots of gamesmanship in soccer because it is a game of strategy it is a much slower in at times you know there's a lot of build-up to plays um and there's no stoppage so it's 45 yeah. minutes of continuous action and fans have to sort of keep it going as opposed to, Hey, we're going to a commercial break for three minutes. Right. So everyone, you know, everyone in, in the stadium is going to go go to the bathroom. We're going to go uh, get a snack and in soccer, no one's moving for 45 minutes. Right. So it's just that you're right. I think the way the game is played and the way the rules of the game have influenced the fandom around it for sure. I mean, I'm sure there's a book in that somewhere in terms of <laughs> culturally, how do you get there? And I think you're right. I think, I think the way games are delivered to people, people respond to them is definitely a part of it. Yeah. And this final thing on this, this kind of side tangent here is um, people are like, Oh man, soccer is so boring. I'm like, I mean, and I love, you know, American football. I'm like, well, true, but you know, you're only, you're only locked in for a limited amount of time. And if it's three nil in the first pitch, the first half, you call it like, so like you, like you know, it, it does have a tendency from the viewing on TV experience. You kind of know what it's going to take to get, get out of this, uh, what your time commitment is. And then if it's a blowout, you can pull the rip cord pretty quickly and uh, and so anyways it's it's, it's funny because I have some European friends and they're like oh man you Americans and your stats and your analytics and you've got a stat for this and a thing for that and timeouts and so it's it's, it's I love kind of the the uh, cross border debates over which sport is more entertaining. Well, it's funny because the 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 American fixation with stats is really born out of baseball because baseball is really set up for lots of stats. And, you know, I had mm-hmm. people tell me they watched the World Series this year and how boring it was because it was mostly a pitcher's World Series as opposed to right. hitting one. And I said, yeah, but, you know, that's the beauty of also baseball. There's going to be moments when it's slow. And it's funny, 30 years ago, the knock on soccer was that soccer was slow. Mm. But you talk to Gen Zers and millennials, they tell you baseball is slow. You know, I, I read recently that the average – age of a baseball fan is 49 years old, which is not the best demographic you're going for. Soccer is a much younger game. It's people in their 20s and 30s are interested in soccer. You know, I have this long-running joke with friends of mine. I always say, look, if a, if MLS, Major League Soccer, is going to put a stadium in your city, it means your city is cool. It's hip. Because every <laughs> American city, like uh, Nashville and Austin, and you know, all these cities are getting soccer stadiums now. And I always tell them, look, it just means the rent is going to go up. And a lot of Gen Zers and millennials are into soccer. And so that's what's going to happen to your city. <laughs> so that's, that's always kind of, but I think that that's true now when soccer was mostly, I think, you know, 30 years ago was mostly a, a, an immigrant game. You know, yeah. Farmers, and for, for our baseball fans, I will link to Dan Good's episode who also wrote a uh, blurb for your book, I believe. Um, so we'll yeah, link yeah. to that. Uh, if you, if you want to hear some uh, 90s nostalgia baseball talk on this podcast, I'll link to that for those baseball fans out there. I'm all in okay. on that. So <laughs> There you go. Um, so let's let's get back to the World Cup. So you mentioned kind of we had the 1930s up to World War II, and then all of a sudden, 1950s, it starts to become a different uh, feel, different game. Help me, help me understand maybe a little bit more about the talent. If you, you think about just to compare it to like basketball, 
people talk about kind of like, you know, 1984 is almost a different game. Do you see those kind of trends throughout the history of, of the World Cup where the game has really just evolved because of the athletes or, uh, you know, I don't know if some kind of ball technology or whatever that's really changed the way the game's played? Yeah, no, definitely 1958 when uh, when a 17-year-old Brazilian came off the stage and played at the World Cup, I mean, Pelé really began to change, you know, the game and that how athletically the players were, just his skill with the ball. And, and he became a dominant figure throughout the 60s until 1970 when he won the World Cup a third for Brazil and really changed the history of Brazilian soccer in that really 12-year period. Um, he retired from the national team and then, you know, he became a global ambassador for the game and played for the New York Cosmos and moved to America and was only here for two years, but made a huge impact culturally on the United States in terms of soccer at that point. So he really, I think, changed the game. He, you know, there's there's only a couple. I, I only really point out the three players in the book that really are game changers. Pele being that person in the 50s and 60s up until 1970. The second being Diego Maradona of Argentina, who did that in the 1980s and 90s. And I think in the present day, we, you know, you can name many players, but I think Lionel Messi is that player today who's really um, been able to use his longevity and skill to really elevate the game to a, to a place that, that we haven't seen before. And the players today are all bigger and faster than ever. And that's in every sport, but in soccer for sure. Um, and I think these are the three, really, if you're going to pinpoint, if you go into the Mount Rushmore of soccer, Minus one, it would be these three guys. So, did you just pick Messi over Ronaldo? Is that what I heard? Uh, yeah, but I, I have an issue with Messi too, and this gets me into a lot of trouble. But I'll, I'll do it here as well, which is to be considered the best, the goat. You have to win the World Cup, okay? Mm-hmm. And so, as far as I'm concerned, Messi is not there. He's in the conversation. So is Ronaldo, but they haven't won a World Cup when Diego Maradona won in '86 and Pele won three, including 1970, where he really put the team on his back. So. I think you have to win a World Cup. It's a little bit like the, you know, for your NFL listeners, you know, Dan Marino could be top five, but he never won a Super Bowl, right? Yeah. You know, and then Eli Manning won two of them and no one puts him in the top five, right? So you have to kind of, you know, I mean, I think you need a championship to really be able to say, hey, look, I'm the best. And I know that it's comparing players from different eras, extremely difficult. I understand that. Mm -hmm. But if we're going to have a a barroom conversation, which is what the fun of sports is, Oh, yeah. And you, then everyone states their case and, you know, and does it. The, the modern day argument is Ronaldo versus Messi, right? And that could be, you know, the way the bracket's set up at the World Cup, you know, if Portugal and Argentina both win their group stage group and advance, they could meet in the final, which to me would be an amazing final, but also be sort of the, the GOAT game, right? Yeah. Whoever wins this has got it. So on, on a team like this, uh, the national team, how much can one player really impact – the team, uh, you know, is is it something you're saying? Well, you're kind of holding it against them. Um, you talk about Dan Marino; that's a great analogy. His second year, he goes to the Super Bowl, loses, never comes back. Some of those teams he was on this weren't very good, and it's kind of hard to attribute too much of that to him. Uh, Soccer is a different game, of course. Um, so, how much how much weight do you can you can, how much blame can you ascribe to one player? Yeah, no, soccer is a team game, and 11, 11 men in the field versus eleven, right? So, obviously, how much damage can one player do? A lot. One is psychological, just knowing that someone like Messi is in the lineup. That that's already psychologically, you know, daunting. Second of all, if if, if this one player can make the rest of your team better, then that's already a leg up, right? And oftentimes in soccer, you have two or three players marking the one player. That leaves other men open. And so Messi is I, I use him as an example, he has this uncanny ability to dribble the ball, but also create create passing, create goals, not just score them. And that's, you know, sort of the mark of a playmaker. Um, and, and it's no coincidence that both Pele, Maradona, and then even Messi, these were all attacking players. You know, unfortunately in soccer, you could be the best defender in the world. You won't get the love and respect that the guy that scores the goals does. Just like the quarterback in football gets all the love, even though the wide receivers, the kicking team, and everybody else does, does all, the, you know, part of the work too. They don't get the love and admiration. So in that sense, um, you know, in that sense, um, that's 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 sort of the analogy there. Yeah, and and so you take someone like Pele, who kind of burst onto the scene, wins three in a row. Um, the game, as we talk about with all this, the game is different. Um, going through the the World Cup's trajectory, as far as 
its prominence globally. What, where would it be without someone like Pele when he came along? Would, would, it, would it still have ascended to these heights, you think, or or was it necessary to have someone like him to really push the game forward? No, you, you, I think you need the superstars to propel the game. I mean, you know, um, team sports, yeah, it's a team game, but you need these superstars because Pele was one of the first players that began to, to be a pitchman. He became the commercials and print ads and started uh, doing commercials for various products. And that's sort of the, the growth of advertising and marketing in the 1960s becomes a thing. And so people want to attach their name to this particular player, this particular brand. So, you know, the two kind of go hand in hand and, you know, you need superstars. I mean, you look at the NBA, where would, where would the NBA be without Michael Jordan in the 1990s? And, and one might argue, well, it would have been somebody else, but, you know, just like Hollywood, you need a star system a little bit, right? You need, you need these iconic players to kind of drive the narrative, you know, uh, sports journalists love storylines and they often go through these, these type of athletes. And so, yeah, if, if Pelly didn't exist, somebody would fill that void. I think you need that, but it's a, a much more modern um, thing. Uh, last 40, 50 years, I would say 60 years, as opposed to maybe, you know, a hundred years ago when, when the, the media wasn't there to amplify these voices either. So. Yeah. And, and you mentioned a minute ago, kind of some of the, the back boardroom stuff that's going on. <laughs> I do want to spend some time on that for a second. Um, you know, there's a documentary that just dropped on Netflix, I think. Um, I can't remember the title of it, but it's uh, about some of the, the corruption um, uh, with the World Cup. But go, let's go back to, to the genesis. You kind of explained that. How come about when or did you start to see maybe hints of corruption, whiffs of corruption? I mean, obviously, you got Mussolini involved, so it's kind of hard to argue that maybe from the beginning it's not always been some level of corruption. Yeah, no, I mean, look, whenever you're hosting a World Cup, you have to get the local government, you know, the, the government, the authorities on board, obviously. And I think FIFA learned this in 1978 when Argentina hosted it and it was hosted by a dictatorship. Now, of course, the World Cup was awarded years earlier, but by the time 1978 rolled around, FIFA had a decision to hit a crossroads. Do we take the World Cup away from Argentina and give it to a democracy or do we get in bed with these bad people? And they decided, let's get in bed with these bad people, you know, and... Not that corruption began there for FIFA, but I think sort of the willingness to work with unsavory people became more normalized. And I think the corruption really hit a crescendo in the 80s and 90s when real money started to come into, you know, the the World Cup became a huge asset in terms of licensing, marketing, television revenue. And FIFA really makes all their money every four years and they make billions off of one tournament. And so that's when the awarding of the World Cup became rife for corruption because FIFA is, you know, for people that don't know, don't know, FIFA is a nonprofit organization with 207 members, you know, bigger than the UN, located in Switzerland. It's a nonprofit technically, and it's all there's no self governance. No one oversees FIFA; they see, oversee themselves. And you know, any organization that leaves it up to themselves to police police its finances is open for corruption. And that's what ended up happening in the, in the 2000s when the awarding of the World Cup was really limited to the 24 member executive committee. It's very easy to corrupt 10 people on the, out of 24 or 11 people and get what you want. And I think countries started to figure that out. Mm. How should society view taking the World Cup to unsavory places? Well, look, society doesn't look upon it well, but the game is such a big draw and there's so much passion around the game that I think people want to suspend their um, unease and watch anyway. I mean, just look at Qatar, right? Qatar is a great example of a country that may, you know, maybe didn't deserve to host the World Cup. And so much has been talked about, you know, it's been a 12-year journey to get here. Um, it's not the ideal location. So much so they had to move the World Cup to November to accommodate it, you know. And there's a lot of discussion about culturally and religiously, can this country host a World Cup? And a lot of human rights abuses and the building of the stadiums and potentially hundreds of people died building them. And I know lots of people who are upset with that, but at the same time, they're saying, you know what, I, I still want to watch the World Cup. It's the biggest sporting event on the planet, right? Like my title says, I want to watch because it's so mesmerizing, so captivating. I don't really care where they have it. I think FIFA knows that and plays on that. I've been to Johannesburg uh, post World Cup, um, and this was, I think, the first time I was down in Joburg was 
2014, something like that, 2015. Um, and I didn't go to one of the stadiums, but we were just driving around. They said, hey, there's one of the one of the stadiums or something like that. And so seeing that, and, and you mentioned the, the stories of the stadium in Qatar, um, you've seen other World Cups, the stadiums are built and then they're, they're never used. Um, is there really, okay, so there is an economic impact, obviously, for having the World Cup, but is it actually mitigated by all the money that's spent to these stadiums that just go to waste? Well, yeah, and ultimately, you know, um, people get excited about the World Cup, and especially when you're hosting it, but a lot of the money goes to FIFA. And oftentimes what the country is left with are a lot of stadiums that are built and are empty. I remember the, the, the stadium in Johannesburg, beautiful stadium. I was there for the World Cup final. It was built on the outskirts of Soweto, which is basically a township where people lived in tin, tin roof shacks, right? I mean, if, if even a fraction of the money that went into building that stadium had been put into housing or hospitals or schools – which what happened in Brazil, a lot of people were protesting on the eve of the World Cup. Of course, once the World Cup rolled around, you know, the protests went away. Um, so people are excited about building stadiums and infrastructure around the World Cup, but often doesn't have a lasting effect. I remember the World Cup final uh, during the closing ceremony, which was held right before the, the game was held. They had all these dancers and, you know, as, as they do at the Olympics, right. And they had all these elephants, you know, people dressed as elephants walking along the field and they were all white. And I thought, wow, what a symbol white elephant is actually what people, the term people use to describe stadiums that often then use very little. I go, they don't even get the analogy. And I said, you know, so, I mean, they were celebrating their own cultural heritage and their own wildlife and all that. But I thought, you know, yeah, the, this infrastructure that's been put in place here will have very little lasting effect. Of course, FIFA would argue, well, we're here to grow the game. And mm-hmm. we, as long as kids are playing the sport, we've done our part. You know, FIFA's job isn't to build hospitals and schools. And I understand that. But oftentimes, as we see even with the Olympics, we see Olympic villages that get abandoned and infrastructure that falls apart. And all that money is spent just for two weeks or a month out of the whole out of the year and then never used again, which is a real shame. And that might be the case with Qatar. I don't know. Um, it's a very small country. doesn't have a, a, a talented domestic soccer league. And they'll have state-of-the-art stadiums. And, you know, whether or not FIFA will throw other tournaments at them over the next few years. I know they're hosting the Asian Cup next year because why not? We have all this infrastructure. And <laughs> right. we also have the, you know, we have the know-how now at this point. But, you know, how long will that last? It remains to be seen. Now, of course, if you've ever been to Qatar, there's a lavish location. It's basically a city built out of the desert. It's like a Las Vegas. And so they're thinking long-term tourism too. And for them, you know, I know one of the stadiums they built is basically like a Lego thing. You can take it apart if you want. So it's very modern, very state-of-the-art architecture. And, you know, hopefully it's it, it'll be used past uh, November. Well, it's interesting because right now, um, if the World Cup would have been um, a few months ago, it would have been right in the thick of the live golf debate that was going on. <laughs> now that debate's kind of died down a little bit, but it just it's just one of these things when you hear these debates about, you know, where stuff's at, whose money's involved. It, and it's 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 weird because and, and maybe some of the PGAers are out there having a conniption over the World Cup being in Qatar. But I suspect they're actually not. Um or gonna boycott it on any on any real level. And so it's just it's one of these things to your point about sports where um we might get frustrated with stuff, but at the end of the day, we almost always buy the ticket, watch the show tune into the event or, or whatever it is, or read the article at least, which is part of the part of the process. Now I got to ask you were in Johannesburg for the world cup final. The Vuvuzela on the TV was, was about the worst thing I've ever experienced watching a game. It was brutal, but what was it like in the stadium? Was it that bad or was it just a TV thing? Yeah, it was, it was deafening. And I remember, you know, at the time I was working at the New York post. And I remember when the world cup opened the first game, we were in the newsroom. Um, the editor in chief actually thought something was wrong with his TV. It's like, what's this, all this buzzing. Yeah, it turned out it was these vuvuzelas, which is a you know a South African tradition. I used to joke around that it sounded like elephants mating. You know, to use another elephant analogy, I got but, one um, <laughs> it was definitely one of those things that was you know, deafening and annoying. And I remember you know thinking, thank goodness we won't see that again in the World Cup, and we really haven't uh, yeah. seen it. Uh, since. Yeah, I, I bought one as I showed you. I bought one when, when I was there. Uh, I can't play it. For the, for the life of me, and if I could, I wouldn't. But I just, yeah. I got it. Just more of a like a. I'm guilty of I bought one when I was there too. I thought, hey, I'll, I'll probably never come back here, and I'll never get a chance to own one of these things. And every once in a while, I remember during the pandemic, um, 
Um, people in New York would clap and, and cheer on nurses, you know, at five o'clock every day. Mm-hmm. My son would go outside and, you know, little kid and just blow into this horn, which didn't, wasn't that, you know, wasn't that loud because you have to know how to play it basically. Right. And it was, but it was kind of this thing that I still have in my closet, back of my closet as a memory of, of, of that tournament. So. Yeah. Yeah. I've been lucky to go there multiple times, but the first time I was there, I was like, I got to get the Vuvuzela just because I can't, I cannot, cannot play to save my life. Um, okay. So let's, let's, um, talk now about some of the more controversial moments or at least um the one that sticks out is obviously there's been a lot of talk about this with the re re um the storytelling around pablo escobar it's kind of come back up again in popular culture so there's a a documentary i think the tale of two escobars um yeah yeah 30 for 30 but maybe unpack kind of like what happened why was pablo so mad did he represent the nation, not literally, but kind of figuratively with the anger. Because from the American perspective, it's hard to imagine someone going to this link. Is this just like a one-off? Are there other stories like this around the World Cup where we go, oh, no, no, no. We, there's a little bit of a pattern where people take it this serious. Well, this was a particular you know, incident back in 94 when the United States hosted the World Cup. And actually, the United States is involved in this story in that Colombia was one of the pre-tournament favorites, so much so that Pele had said, you know, they could win the World Cup. And Colombian soccer was really on an upswing in the late 80s and early 90s. Little did we know that a lot of that um, talent and enthusiasm around the game domestically was fueled by narco trafficking money, right? Drug money was, you know, they were using that money and funneling it into sports teams because, you know, you have to launder the money somehow. And they were building up sports teams and winning South American tournaments. And it was sort of part of a growth thing. Of course, these this collided when the United States played them. The United States won the game two to one, and the winning goal for the United States came off of an own goal where a Colombian defender named Andres Escobar, no relation to Pablo Escobar, um, slotted the ball into his own net. Okay, and the Colombians were basically eliminated out of the group stage as a result of that defeat. For the United States, it was a huge win at the Rose Bowl. It was soccer's making it in America. We're we're not only hosting it, but we're we're beating good teams. It was one of the biggest World Cup upsets ever in American history. Ten days later, you know, um, Andres Escobar is gunned down outside of a bar in, in Colombia. Um, and, you know, the official story is that it was a gambling syndicate that had put a lot of money on uh, these games. And as a result of this own goal, you know, they, they executed him, which is not so unusual at that time in history in, Col- in Colombia where drug money was a big deal. And, and Pablo Escobar himself had a lot, a big love for soccer, so much so that he would pay professional Colombian players to come play pickup games in his backyard, basically, which is basically a soccer field. And so there's this connection between, it turns out that Andres Escobar really had wanted nothing to do with Pablo Escobar or with drug lords. And it was really a shame. It was really a black eye for the game. Um, you know, not so much because of the passion that exudes, but just how much money is involved in illegal gambling and how much, you know, pressure was put on these players and teams so much so that, that, that the story goes that they had gotten a phone call on the eve of the game, basically threatening the players saying, you better win this game. And I think under all that pressure, you know, they, they crumbled. Um, and the tragedy is that, you know, a player like him had to pay the price for it. And I, in, in the middle of my book, there's a iconic photos from the world cup. And I have a photo of Andres Escobar sitting, you know, sitting on the ground, just sort of dejected after scoring that goal by mistake into his own net, you know, little did he know then that he wouldn't be alive much later. Mm. You mentioned gambling. How big a part of gambling is the world cup? Is it a small niche thing or is it, is it globally games are bet on pretty heavy? Uh, no, it's, 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 it's pretty heavy now in Europe and parts of other parts of the world. Sports gambling has been legal for decades. Right. Um, it's a fairly newer thing in the United States because the sports book basically left, left Las Vegas and has become legal in so many states. I suspect there will be a, a, a big area of growth for American gambling for DraftKings and FanDuel and wherever else you gamble nowadays online. I think people, if you watch these um, sports leagues on TV, you know, the, these major gambling outfits are sponsoring segments and, 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 and very involved with the sport. The sports leagues have embraced them, which is a real sea change from people our age who remember when, you know, sports gambling was a real taboo and you couldn't do it. And the world, there's a lot of gambling around the World Cup. I mean, I've already been offered to join three office pools and, you know, my, my, my daughter, you know, and, and it's low level gambling, I know, but everybody wants to do a bracket. It's a little bit like March Madness. And mm-hmm. so... 
Um, I, I, I think this year more than ever, I've noticed in the past. So definitely there's, there's definitely a, a growth in, 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 in the big time gambling, but I think also in, in the small time stuff, you know. Okay. So what is or what was the biggest upset in World Cup history? That's a good question. There's, there's been a few big ones, you know, for the American audience, you know, 1950, the United States defeated England 1-0, which was seen as a huge upset. So much so that when the score came in on the official ticker back in England, they thought it was a misprint that, that England had won 10-0 or something like that. And it turns out it was 1-0 for the United States. Um, of course, I spoke to some of the, one of the players, Walter Barr, um, years ago, he's since passed away. Um, and he said that, you know, it was not a big deal in the United States. It wasn't until 1994 when the U.S. hosted the World Cup that many people, this was brought to their attention. By the way, the United States actually, you know, upset England in 1950. And uh, he said that when he got back to the airport from that from that World Cup, that only his wife was there to greet him. So clearly soccer had not had not been a thing yet. Um, for 1966, for example, North Korea defeated Italy. That's a huge upset. You know, Italy was was and is one of the best countries in the world for soccer and North Koreans were basically an unknown quantity which is a highlight a little bit of the technology that we have today you mm. couldn't scout teams back then unless you went to visit them right and so yeah. North Korea is like an unknown quantity today they would be an unknown quantity we wouldn't be able to see them play other than on television and so that's considered another another big upset um and then the United States I consider this an upset you know in 2010 they actually tied England in the group stage 1-1 and the United States ended up winning that group uh, in dramatic style when they beat Algeria in the final game on, a, on that Landon Donovan goal with no time left. And I always tell people, if I'm in a bad mood, I'll just go on YouTube and watch that goal just to feel better. <laughs> uh, you know. So if anyone has never done that, you should do that because it's it's one of the most exciting moments in U.S. soccer. Okay, what is the best game in World Cup history? You know, that's a good question, too. You know, often the best game is not the final. You know, you would think the final would be the best game, the sure. best two teams, but they often get there exhausted and they're so scared of losing that the, the best the best doesn't come out of them. But I think I mean, having rewatched a lot of the old games, I think that one of the most exciting finals ever was 1970 when Brazil defeated Italy 4-1. to one. Um, You know, Pele was on fire in that game. You know, Brazil took the lead and Italy tied the game. And then the second half, really, the Brazilians unleashed and, and won it. And at that same tournament, um, the semifinal between Germany and Italy is considered the game of the century, where the two teams basically uh, were tied 2-2 uh, after regulation. They went to overtime, and overtime is not sudden death in soccer. And the Italians prevailed 4-3. to three. So the, 1970 was one of those tournaments where you had these amazing teams and amazing games. And to me, those stand out. Having rewatched those, of course, they're before my time. Um, I put those games up against anything. So, if you could watch a game anywhere in the world, like where would you want to have the World Cup hosted, and where would you want to go watch it live? That's a good question. You know, I'd want to. You know, thankfully, four years from now, the United States is co-hosting it with Mexico and Canada, so I'd love to have it here. I'd love to watch the final, maybe at MetLife Stadium, if, if that is where they decide to play it. Um, but if I can pick any country with any. You know, with any venue, I'd, I'd, I'd say somewhere in England. I think English stadiums are amazing. And, yeah. you know, to, to watch a World Cup final or, or a World Cup game like at Wembley in London would be, I think, amazing. And who's to say that England won't get a World Cup in the future? So They, they won't. They won't. <laughs> That's for my British friends. <laughs> Always give me a hard time. Um, well, I'll tell you this, to, just to interject on that point. I do think FIFA wants to go to newer and bigger markets like India and China. And I think countries like England, there's no need to spread the game there. The game is already a big deal there. So I do think that countries like that will have to wait a very long time before they ever get in the rotation again. So, yeah. What is your dream matchup from historic teams to modern teams? Like if you could bring Pele or whoever it would be, maybe it's messy. What would you, what, what would be the game you'd want to put together and see played? So yeah, it's sort of a total fantasy. I'd love to see like the 1970 Brazil team with Pele take on the 1986 Maradona team, for example. To, you know, just to take two different eras, and that's the only time you can do it in a video game, maybe. Right. But I'd love to see those two teams, you know, duke it out, and and maybe even the 1986 Argentina team with Maradona versus the more modern Argentina with Messi, because really Messi and Maradona seen as as very similar. Um, but there's a love hate relationship going on there, and that I think the Argentine population really is enamored with Maradona and with Messi a little bit less. And I think that if Messi is able to deliver a world cup, you know, uh, next month, 
then I think it, then I think the love affair will will be full blown messy. But until then, I think Maradona is still the the man they love. What was the biggest myth that you dispelled about the World Cup when you're researching this book? That's a great question because the World Cup, especially anything pre nineteen seventy, is full of myths. And then as a journalist, I felt like, look, you know, the myths are fun and I want to mention them, but I also want to dig a little deeper. And so, for example, in 1934, uh, Italy had reached the final and, you know, we mentioned Mussolini and apparently Mussolini sent a telegram to the Italian players saying win or die, Mm -hmm. you know, and many of the players have appeared on television decades later to say, look, that never happened. That's just a myth that never happened. And so I'd love to mention that, but also to dispel it, you know, um, in the sense that it, it wasn't, it wasn't real. The other myth is that 1950, the United States defeated England, like I mentioned, and that most of the players on the U S team were really basically Englishmen, Scott, Scottish, uh, nationals and not American. That's not true. There were a few players that were, um, uh, born in England, uh, but many of them had been, you know, British or Scottish heritage and, and been raised here. So it, it wasn't a team of, um, you know, it, it wasn't a team stacked with foreigners to, to get a win. So that was another myth that had to be dispelled. So there's little things like that uh, across the book. I mentioned that Italy lost to North Korea, right? And mm-hmm. the, the player from North Korea scored the winning goal was a, a man named Pak Do Ik. And, you know, Italian media loved to say that he was a dentist by trade. Well, <laughs> that's not true. I don't know how that myth ever was born, but he was never a dentist in North Korea. And I don't know why that that became the – maybe, maybe you know, people don't like dentists. I don't know. But um, so that, that wasn't true. So there was a lot of little things like that that over the course of reporting it and writing it, I was able to mention but also dispel, which is fun. Okay. So the opposite would be is – which um, one did you find to be true that was most stunning, surprising, entertaining? Uh, or is there one that you just couldn't dispel that, that's kind of out there lurking going, God, I wish I knew the answer to? Well, the one I couldn't dispel was the fact that when Brazil played Argentina in the 1990 World Cup, I think it was around the 16, um, and, and look, Argentines and Brazilians hate each other in terms of on the soccer field, they're the biggest rivals in the continent. There is a myth or a story that uh, the Brazilians uh, – drank out of some water bottles that the Argentines had given them and they were laced with something. Some of the Brazilian players said they felt kind of weak and tired afterwards. Mm. And I think, I don't think it's true, but I think the Argentine players like to, to this day kind of <laughs> wink and nod as yeah. if they did something and I couldn't dispel it one way or another. So that's one of those things that is not necessarily myth, but it could be true. And it's kind of one of those things where it's maybe a tall tale, but it's such a fun story that I couldn't spell it, but at the same time, I had to include it. And uh, and there it is. It's up for the audience to figure out whether or not it, they want to believe it or not. I guess the Brazilians believe it because they ended up losing that game 1-0. Yeah. Okay, so let's do predictions now. Um, a, who's going to win it? Who's going to win the finals? And then secondarily, how will the U.S. fare? Okay, so my, my, my final, you know, I've done a lot of interviews over the last few weeks, so I have to stay consistent. I have to stick with this. Um, and the caveat is I'm not good at these. I'm always usually more wrong no, than no, right. No one's, no one's good at these. That's how we do them. My final is Argentina, England, and I have Argentina winning the whole thing. Um, I, I do think that the Argentines, the Brazilians are going to win it. I do think it's South America's turn to break the 20 year lock that Europe now has on the world cup. And I think it'll happen in a, in a climate that's very similar to, to Latin America. So I, I do say that the United States, I think will finish second in the group and group B and advance out of the group. I think they'll, you know, probably beat Wales, tie England and tie Iran. You know, they'll, they'll, they'll do enough to finish second. Um, and then that would put them against the winners of group A, which I think might be the Netherlands. I see them crashing out in the round of 16, which, you know, for the United States, getting out of the group is a huge win. Right. Uh, uh, anything past the round of 16, a quarterfinal would be amazing. Yeah, that would exactly. be like winning the yeah. World Cup. And, so, and I'm glad you brought it up. For, yeah, for the non-soccer uh, U.S. fan who turns in every four, four years, getting out of the group is kind of all the goal is here. Just getting out of group and right. whatever happens at that point is. Then you're, the, you're in the top 16 in the world, which is, which right. is pretty good. Okay. You got a dark horse? My dark horse is Denmark. I think Ooh. that they had a really good Euros um, uh, last year. The Christian Eriksen, you know, who collapsed in the field, and then it was a, a big feel-good story. Mm-hmm. He's back. And I do think they can do something similar to what um, Croatia did four years ago, which they got all the way to the final. I don't think Denmark can do that. But I think Denmark can be a bit of a spoiler at dark horse. So for sure, I, that's what my dark horse is. 
Okay, one non-FIFA question here. Uh, is there any hope for my man? You mentioned teams earlier. You didn't mention Man United, which which really which really hurt my soul. You mentioned all the big brands, and you dropped Man City in there. It's like, oh, he didn't say United. What has happened to us? How much longer do I have to suffer? Okay, so there's a couple of things going on there. So Man United, you know, Ronaldo is really the big – Cristiano Ronaldo is the big soap opera there where right on the eve of leaving for Qatar, he drops a bomb, you know, that Ten Hag is a, not, a, you know, not a great coach, and that he doesn't feel loved and that kind of thing. And so I think, I think Man United can finish top four and go into the Champions League. I do think they should seriously consider um, selling or loaning out Ronaldo in the January window because I think he's a distraction more than anything else. Um, and I think if they do that, they could then write the ship. You know, as you know, in club soccer, it takes two to three years to sort of, you know, get in the Champions League, have a decent Champions League next year, maybe try to win the league in two years. So you have to build, you have to start somewhere with a new coach. I think they can do that. But I think Ronaldo is becoming more of a problem than a, than a positive. So that's just my take on Ronaldo. Now, I, I don't think it's very professional of him to throw out these comments and then just fly off the guitar. But I think he wants to, you know, I think he's doing that because he realizes he's going to be in these greener pastures of team Portugal, which are going to treat him well. And he knows that at the world cup, if he scores a couple of goals, then he can, you know, potentially then get interest from other, other teams. I think, I think his brand, his legacy is, is hurting now. And he's really done nothing since the summer to maybe improve that. And I think he needs to do that. So he needs to rebuild yeah. his reputation a bit. I don't know if the full interview with Pierce Morgan has dropped at the time of this recording or not. I've seen it. I've seen it. Right, that's where he made the comments, right? Yeah. yeah. And so I'm curious to see uh, the full scope. Because some, some of the things he did say, which I found interesting, was um, you know, the, the facilities have been upgraded and stuff like that. So I'm curious to see if some of those things are true, that, then that there is more of a problem behind the scenes than maybe um, the average person would know. But anyways, okay. Enough inside baseball or football. Uh, soccer there i guess okay the book is the fifa world cup a history of the planet's biggest sporting event we're gonna link to it in amazon of course um anywhere else you want to send people to twitter uh website yeah so, yeah, so the book amazon is the best place to get it and then for me if you want to tweet tweet at me I'm, I'm very active on twitter at clemente lisi and you know i'll be on there when i'm not on there during the world cup i'll be glued to the tv and then i'm flying to qatar the final week of the tournament i'll be there so yeah, hit me up. I'd love to talk some soccer. Do you need someone to travel there with you to carry some bags around, carry the recording equipment, you know, whatever? Just just let me know. Don't don't let Dan. I've got a long waiting list at this point. So. <laughs> I bet you do, yeah. Okay. All right, well, thank you so much for your time today, and best of luck on the book. Thank you.